You have tuned into the Voice of Medicine, the medical podcast filled with remarkable stories, first-hand experience, important research, and valuable life lessons. Open your mind, relax, and enjoy. Hello, everybody. I hope you had a great week. My today's guest is someone very special. I want you to welcome Dr. Virginia Votrain. Virginia is an associate professor at the Baylor College of Medicine, and since years, she was working very closely with NASA and with their human research program. She worked at the Center of Space Medicine and in the Department of Pharmacology, which gives her a unique expertise on the topic of space flight and drug use in the environment of space. Very unusual topic indeed that we're going to discuss today. Personally, I have never heard of space medicine before till I found out about Virginia's work and I'm very excited. Let's see what she's got in store for us. I'm delighted to be here. Virginia, the first thing which I want to start with to give our audience a little bit, you know, a a background of of yours so they know who am I actually talking to is, can you describe your path to space medicine? Because you started with uh, the bachelor degree of of chemistry, I think. So how does one go from that to space and working with NASA? So it might not be obvious, right? Doesn't seem like it. It was unplanned. So I did. I got a bachelor's degree in chemistry and biochemistry. And I was particularly interested in the biochemistry part of it. Um, After I got that degree, I worked for a few years as a technician in a biology lab that was studying some neurochemistry questions about um, axonal regeneration after damage. And during the course of that work, I realized just how excited I was about biology, Mm -hmm. about applying uh, my knowledge of chemistry to biological sorts of questions. And at the same time, I met a professor in the department who studied ion channels. And I I had not known about ion channels before, but from chit-chatting with him over lunch and learning about what he did, I was amazed. So I went to graduate school to study ion channels. And I, I spent five and a half years learning about ligated ion channels and studying the endogenous and exogenous chemicals that can affect how well they open, how fast they open, how long they stay open, or how they get blocked. So I became an expert in that. And through that work, I got more into molecular biology as well, Mm -hmm. because different subunits of ion channels can have very different functional activities, which made me want to be able to mutate a channel to see which part, which amino acids in a channel really controlled the function of it which is what I went on to do in my postdoctoral fellowship. So I studied um, structure-function relationships in ligand-gated ion channels through my postdoc. You know, from that point of view, it looked like my path was getting very, 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 very narrow down to single ion channels, single amino acids in ion channels. Then when I went to apply for my first assistant professor job, I saw an advertisement in the back of science. This was before all of the ads were online. So I had to actually look in the paper uh, version of science. And 
NASA Johnson Space Center was looking for a pharmacologist. That just didn't compute and I didn't pay attention to it the first time I saw it. But they ran that ad for several weeks. So I kept seeing it again and again. So I, I Googled Johnson Space Center and tried to figure out why they would employ a pharmacologist. And I discovered that at Johnson Space Center, they have a very small division of space life sciences. They have a very small pharmacology research lab there. And that sounded just too intriguing to not apply. So I applied and I got the position. Then I I was faced with the, a whole new world, taking everything I'd ever learned about how, how drugs interact with the molecules in our systems and putting it in a different environment. So the spaceflight environment changes a lot of aspects of our physiology. I mean, it doesn't make us unrecognizable. We still function as human beings, but uh, it makes small changes in a lot of aspects. And we don't yet know how the drugs or the medications we might take interact with that slightly altered physiology. Very interesting way how to get to space medicine. So how does exactly, um, if we want to go to the topic of physiology changing in, in the different environments or in the environment of space, how does the human physiology change it? Yeah, so this is really interesting. And it's been studied by... NASA and and other researchers they brought in for as long as people have been going to space. Mm-hmm. So we have we have 50 years of work in this area and we still don't know all of the answers. Very quickly after sending people to space, it was noticed that there was the potential for uh, changes in body weight and heart rate. And that those were a little I won't say alarming, but attention getting at the time because they could have serious consequences, right? Those changes were noticed not by researchers, but by the flight surgeons who were uh, charged with taking care of astronaut health. This was back in the Project Mercury days in the 60s. And I've recently had the good fortune to work with one of those flight surgeons uh, who uh, has wanted to make an effort to get some publications out of his work from those early days. Mm-hmm. He was always charged with taking care of his patients and and never had time to put his results into the medical literature. So I've been working with him on this lately. Uh, Bill Carpentier is his name. And we've put out one paper now on the Mercury astronauts. We're working now in the Gemini data that he has. So that was just a little segue. Uh, so they noticed initially some physiological changes. And as, as instrumentation improved the ability to measure more and more things during a mission mm-hmm. improved. So at first, there were very, very few things they could measure in a flight. They could measure someone's weight before a flight and afterwards, but couldn't do anything during. And similarly for blood pressure, body temperature even, and certainly for more advanced measures, just pre-post. As instrumentation improved, more and more things could be measured during the mission, and that helps a lot. Um, now we have measures of many aspects of physiology during every mission. And as as time has gone by, we were able to notice that people lost bone mineral density mm-hmm. during flights, especially longer flights. People lost um, muscle strength and volume. Both uh, could have serious consequences upon returning to Earth or upon landing on any body that has any gravity, you know, not just Earth. It would be just as bad landing on Mars as on Earth. So those came out initially. 
there were astronaut reports, kind of anecdotal reports about quite a number of different things mm-hmm. that researchers are now trying to study more. In, in the early days, some astronauts reported when they closed their eyes to go to sleep at night, they could see flashes. They'd see like a bright flash go across the visual field. Well, we think that is radiation. And there's a, there's a lot of dosimetry that happens on spaceflight missions now to measure the, uh, the species of radiation exposure as well as the amount. And there are many researchers, there's a big research effort trying to figure out what the consequences are for a human body exposed to that kind of radiation. It's low level, but it's more than we get on Earth. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, largely cosmic galactic radiation, galactic cosmic radiation. Sorry, I said that backwards. Um, a little bit of heavy ion exposure, more than we get on Earth. But on the ISS right now, exposure is really very low. It will increase a lot. It increases a lot if you go beyond the Van Allen belts. So for exploration in the future, um, it will become significant. Okay, so we definitely have exposure to you know uh, higher um, higher doses of, of radiation as number one uh-huh. danger for the astronauts. You mentioned decreased density in in bones, right? Um, is that and also um, loss of muscle? And is this because they are simply not moving or you know exercising the way that we do? I mean, down here on Earth, um, you know, people walk, people people can I don't know cycle, they can go to gym. I doubt that you can do that in a spaceship um, regarding of the very small space and the possibilities. So my astronaut friends would tell you that um, they are just as active up there. Okay. It's just that it's different. Mm -hmm. There's no gravity pulling down. There's no gravity to work against. So you and I, even though we're sitting in chairs right now, our bodies are having to do a little bit of work to keep us sitting upright, not, not just slumping in a puddle affected by gravity. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're working against gravity, even though we're not moving. In space, that work goes to almost zero. But they, they locomote around their craft uh, just as much as we move around our homes and offices during the day. They're not walking on their feet. Mm-hmm. They're, they're moving with their arms. They're grabbing handrails. So they're performing more upper body activity rather than lower body activity. And they don't have that baseline working against gravity. Now, it was, it was assumed uh, from the very start, I think, that this was the only driving force in reduction of bone mineral density and muscle volume and strength. So NASA instituted uh, a series of studies to investigate how much exercise and what kind of exercise could be done in space mm-hmm. to help maintain bone mineral density and muscle size and strength. And now the astronauts are on exercise regimens where they actually return from flight with essentially no loss in bone mineral density or, or muscle size and strength. They are slotted periods of time every day to perform exercise. And they they get some choices about what kind of things they mm-hmm. can do. There's equipment on the ISS um, to, to do cycling, or uh, there's a treadmill, and there is a machine called the Advanced Resistive Exercise Device 
that is built to simulate uh, performing various weightlifting maneuvers mm -hmm. so they can really load a muscle uh, very, very well and get resistive exercise. That equipment is big and bulky. Some modifications will be needed for an exploration flight, but on the ISS, it's really working great. Now, at the same time, basic research has continued along these lines, and recent results, I wish I could remember a citation for you, but there's a recent paper that, that shows some gene expression changes in muscle cells that indicate it may not be just the unloading. There may actually be a radiation component to this as well. Okay. Yeah, so it could be that metabolism in the muscles and possibly bones is affected in a way that they just aren't maintaining themselves. Fascinating. So we talk now about um, more or less two or the three main dangers. We also talked about how uh, the astronauts can, you know, work against it, especially with the with the physical activity. I would also like to go into the topic of medication and drug. Right. I think one uh -huh. of your main jobs is to design uh, drugs so they work according to the environment of space. Now, um, a silly question. Let's say I'm an astronaut and I have a headache in space. Can I take an aspirin? Absolutely. Works um, the same. I don't know, but you can take it. <laughs> okay. And many astronauts have. Uh, there are also other ordinary pain relievers available on the ISS, ibuprofen, um, Tylenol. Yeah. So okay. the, the medications that are available on the ISS are the same things that we would use down here. There are no mm -hmm. special formulations. Mm -hmm. Nope. Um, NASA does not have the means to develop new drugs and, and test new drugs. So they are faced with using what's available and approved now. Mm -hmm. um, my job at NASA was to think about whether, whether astronaut needs were going to be met by what was in the kit and to kind of keep an eye out for any, any red flags about whether something was not working, or mm -hmm. whether something seemed to have unusual side effects, that kind of thing. So the astronauts basically took, or um, yeah, they took what we have here on Earth just up into space, yeah. they used it, and the idea was, okay, well, if it works, perfect. If there is something different, we need to think about the solutions. Yes. Okay, okay, perfect. So yes, there is exactly. no special space medicine that you have to take. Uh, with you because it works completely different. No, so we don't. <laughs> you know, don't I saw way film. too many sci-fi movies, <laughs> so yeah. perhaps that's why. So uh, that's something that we might fantasize about. Mm -hmm. It'd be nice to have an anti-radiation pill. We don't have that yet. Although with radiation therapy being so common for cancer patients, mm -hmm. there are many drug companies on Earth who are developing things like that. And I have been keeping an eye on those developments in hopes that maybe what they develop is something that could be useful for astronauts in the future. But the reality is that drug development and testing is incredibly expensive. Mm. You know, it's on the order of a billion dollars per drug. So unless and you're a big pharma company with an R&D, you are probably not going to, you know, pull this off. Right. And asking this any space agency to absorb that cost is, is unreasonable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Another thing which I wanted to ask you is, so also one of your, uh, one of your jobs was to design the medical kits that the you know the astronauts are taking with them into space in a way that it lasts so you, you had to pay attention to um, the factor of time but also the spatial factor because as we already said these stations 
are not large, right? They are very small in space. So how did you deal with that? So first off, I don't I don't design the medical kit. Um, however, I may have been asked to advise mm -hmm. the pharmacists and physicians who were designing the kit. So caveat aside, thinking about what you would most need, there are some analog situations you can you can look at to determine what needs might be on a mission. You know how many people are going to be on board. You know how long they're going to be there. You can look at information like, well, previous spaceflight missions for, you know, how many times was an aspirin needed mm -hmm. kind of thing. Those, those are in the records. You can also look at what were the needs of remote Antarctic missions? What were, what were they needing? What about crews on submarines? You know, they might have some similar needs. So NASA has pulled together uh, data from what they call spaceflight analogs like this into a big model, a, a computer model, they call the integrated medical model, where they, they look at what was the rate of occurrence per person of various medical conditions and what were the treatments applied and what were, and what were those treatments. So we actually have numbers that we can put on things. A, a certain 0.05 events of some medical event Per person per year. And using that, you can extrapolate what your needs might be for a mission of whatever length of time with whatever number of crew. So based on real practical experience with previous space flights and modeling like that, we can make a good guess. Then, um, now with the ISS, these folks are not very far away. And we have, we have four to six missions that go to the ISS every year. So we can monitor what they're using, keep track of what gets used up, what looks like it's getting low. They can report back to Earth and we can send up more. And that information goes into future planning as well. You know, what needed to be restocked under what conditions. So the planning yeah. is getting basically better and better with the amount of data that you have through the missions that have been already done in uh, thanks to a clever use of, of the analog uh, um, data that you have from submarines and some other remote uh, missions where basically the idea is the same, people go there and there is no uh, uh, line of supply which is always there so people cannot just go you know, to a shop outside and get the stuff. That's right. Mm. It's a long way to the nearest drugstore, the nearest pharmacy. Yeah. And yeah. with the ISS, we really don't have to think about medication stability over time mm -hmm. because we have such frequent resupply missions. The pharmacists who are dispensing these medications on Earth are keeping track of the expiration date on everything they send up, mm -hmm. and they will notify the crew members when something is nearing expiration. The crew members will pull that from active use. It gets replaced, and, and what they pull out of active use usually gets destroyed. They, they pack it with the trash onto one of the vehicles that burns up after... Um, after it docks with the ISS. So essentially incinerating them in space. Why is it not advisable to use any kind of medication or drug beyond the aspiration date? So it's <laughs> a great question. And we've all faced it, right? We've all used expired medications, whether we intended to or not, we have. I've actually been horrified at, at finding expired medications around my own house, how old some of them have been. It happens, but it's not advisable, and there there are a couple of couple of reasons why um, medicines do degrade over time. We know this; this is an absolute fact. They do degrade over time, and it's not just the active ingredient; it's also the inactive ingredients that degrade. And things like temperature, humidity, 
exposure to light, exposure to oxygen, they all drive degradation for various chemical components in a medication form. Um, So in in any um, medication dosage form, you've got not only an active ingredient, but some inactive or inner ingredients. So it's a chemical mixture. It's a complex chemical mis- mixture. There's there's complicated chemistry going on inside one little tablet, and that can be influenced by humidity, humidity, temperature, light, oxygen. So changes going on over time continuously. We can try and limit it with good packaging, but you can't stop it. Now, two things can happen. The active ingredient can degrade, and it can degrade into a form where it's less active or inactive. So your unit dose has less active ingredients. So it's like taking a lower dose. So that's one situation where the dose is getting lower and lower over time. Another situation that we know of with a few medications, ingredients degrade, and it could be active or inert ingredients. Ingredients degrade to form something that is toxic to us. So rather than having an active ingredient get uh, lower and lower in concentration over time, you may have something potentially dangerous getting higher and higher in concentration Mm -hmm. over time. Now, it's unfortunate that um, around the world, none of our regulatory bodies seem to be tracking which medications fall into which of those categories. So as a consumer, and frankly, physicians and pharmacists don't know this information either, we don't know which drug falls into which category. Mm -hmm. So that being the case, the only safe way to use our medications is to use them within the expiration date. So that's the only way how to be safe. Could you give me an example um, of a medication that when it expires, uh, it becomes toxic? And then if somebody actually really, you know, takes it, what the consequences could be? We learned about this in the 1960s with tetracycline antibiotics. Individuals, and the most dramatic publication that's out there is is a case report from a child who's given an antibiotic that had been stored in the home for some time and was Mm -hmm. expired, but no one thought anything of it. The child became quite ill and was taken to the emergency room and had to be treated for kidney failure. And it it was traced back. They did some talk studies and determined that there was this poison in the bloodstream, and that chemically could be traced back to a degradation product from the tetracycline. So that was our first heads up that that some medications do actually become dangerous. Well, well, kidney failure is no nothing to joke uh, with, you know, I mean, no. to, <laughs> leading to death. So, okay, no more pills which are, uh, you know, beyond the expiration date. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, so I urge everyone to go uh, clean out their medicine oh, kits, yeah. their cabinets. Yeah, do that on, on maybe a yearly basis. Mark, make it part of spring cleaning to get rid of those old medications. Even things that you buy over the counter, like aspirin and Tylenol, degrade and um, can suffer in performance or or cause increases in compounds that are probably not good for you. Mm-hmm. Um, the FDA standards for acetaminophen, Tylenol, in this country have uh, recently been changed by the FDA requiring a higher purity because of uh, recognition that one of the degradation products is slightly toxic. So that's one to to get rid of, absolutely. And with your ordinary aspirin bottle, you can perform a test yourself. Mm -hmm. If you open a bottle of old aspirin and sniff, 
You sometimes smell vinegar. Mm-hmm. That is a breakdown product. Thank you very much for the uh, uh, for the little uh, how do you call I it life hacks? You like call that. it life hacks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I wish I, wish I, I had a test like that for every medicine. That would be great. That would be great. You drop the pill into a glass, it becomes blue. You know, it's 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 bad. You shouldn't eat it. <laughs> yeah, don't don't use that. <laughs> um, I think one of the things that you did and or or you and your colleagues did together is that you learn um, from certain other animals or let's say living organisms, um, how to deal with the radiation in space. This was something very interesting for me that, you know, um, researchers look into the animal kingdom to find possible ideas how to deal with radiation uh, exposure. So I haven't done this work myself, Mm -hmm. but I have working in a a grant-providing institution, funded a few people who do. We thought this was just an an absolutely fascinating way to go. There are some organisms that are relatively resistant to environmental stressors, like radiation, or not many animals on Earth find themselves being exposed to radiation. Mm -hmm. So they probably get naturally exposed to things like dehydration, or a high salt content in their water, or changes in temperature, things like that. And it seems that some of these organisms that are very resistant to those natural environmental stressors are naturally resistant to radiation as well. So what's different about those animals? What, What makes them resistant? Could we learn something from that that we could then use to our own advantage, whether it be pharmacologically or otherwise? So we sponsored research looking at E. coli and tardigrades and, um, you know, there were a lot of jokes. You've heard a joke about how a cockroach will be the only animal to survive a nuclear war. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so we haven't, we didn't fund any cockroach work. I haven't run across any researchers working on radiation exposure in cockroaches. I don't know if that's really real or just a joke, but... To all the radiation researchers out there working on cockroaches, you may have some spaceflight applications here. Um, get in touch with NASA. <laughs> um, I also saw that you wrote a book called um, Space Pharmacology. Is that right? Yes. Exactly. Yes. Could you give us, you know, I don't a few highlights of what you wrote in this book? Maybe some like the top-notch highlight from your research that would interest our audience? Ah, So this work came out of my first year working at Johnson Space Center. Mm -hmm. I, as I told you, I had no background in space. So I had to educate myself with uh, the literature regarding what had been done with respect to pharmacology research in spaceflight. So that's what this book is. It was me educating myself. So I looked at um, pharmacokinetics, affected by spaceflight, and in, and also a number of aspects of pharmacodynamics. In pharmacokinetics, uh, there were a couple things that did jump out. One is we have never done anything more than um, a very low-end experiment in the world of PK. There have been a few individuals who have taken medications in flight and had blood sampled, or in some cases, saliva sampled. Mm -hmm. Those samples returned to Earth later, concentrations measured over time, just as you would on Earth. Because the number of subjects has been so small, we can't draw a conclusion. Mm -hmm. The results are very variable. And as you probably are aware, um, most pharmacology studies like this 
because human variability is so broad, we need at least dozens of people. Pharmaceutical companies typically test hundreds mm-hmm. uh, for these kinds of studies. Yeah. So we, we just have little data points right now, and there's a, there's a need for more information. But one thing that did uh, come out conclusively in the, in the first few days of any spaceflight and the first few days of returning to Earth mm-hmm. and experiencing 1G gravity again, many astronauts experience um, GI symptoms. They may feel nauseous. They may uh, vomit. That affects your GI motility. So if you're talking about using an oral dosage form of a drug, mm-hmm. obvious issue there. Yeah, big, big um, possibility for changes if, if GI motility is being changed. Did you also have to work with, with um, well, MDs, doctors, which uh, were part of the team? Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? How did it go? What, what did they bring to the table from you know, their expertise? Or was there somebody, I don't know, we would not expect to be on the team like that, working together with you guys, I don't know, some, some sort of technician that we don't even know that really exists, uh, you know, a crazy profession that is unknown to the, to the public. Well, I don't know about crazy professions, but um, there are there are operational medical teams. Mm-hmm. There are flight surgeons and pharmacists, and there might be a unique flight person involved, the uh, biomedical engineer. Mm-hmm. So in mission control, there there's a seat for a flight surgeon. There's also a seat for the biomedical engineer. They sit side by side, and they have a lot of communication with each other and, and also with their crew members in flight. So what they're hearing about crew member needs during a flight, crew member experiences, they deal with. And then if they feel like operations in the future need to change, they may call for some meetings with the pharmacy folks, with the folks like me over in research. And in the research group at Johnson Space Center, there's pharmacology. There's also a a little laboratory studying bone, a little laboratory studying muscle, Mm -hmm. uh, a neurovestibular laboratory. Uh, a cardiovascular laboratory, a nutritional sciences lab, an immune system lab. There's, you know, every department is represented there. And on many questions that come up, many operational um, events may include people from all of these groups. Okay. You know, since our physiology is not, uh, not bottlenecked into particular mm-hmm. physiological systems, we tend to experience things as an entire organism. So you need basically, a, let's call them an expert for each of the field, you know, come together and kind of sort out if something needs to be adjusted. Okay. Exactly. Now, exactly. You spend a lot of time, um, you know, back in the day with, with astronaut. Do you perhaps, you know, as, you know, as a close up for our talk, have an um, interesting anecdote that you heard from an astronaut, maybe somehow related to, you know, medicine, your work. So an astronaut physician, Mike Barrett, mm-hmm. came to me one day and asked um, on the topic of medication stability. You know, I'd been wrestling with that and he knew about mm-hmm. it. Why can't you just make the drugs up there? And, you know, so I thought about it. You know, your initial response is, <laughs> that's funny, uh, hard to replicate a pharmaceutical manufacturing plant in space. How would you do that? Uh, but drug manufacturers themselves take 
the active ingredient in isolation, and that can be stored in a minus 80 freezer mm -hmm. indefinitely. If you can make it that cold and it's in isolation from the other ingredients, it is very stable. You can't do that with, with a single pill because the pill is mixed with all of the other ingredients and you actually increase degradation of medications that are meant for room temperature storage and put them in the freezer. That's no good. But the isolated active ingredients, you could do that. So if we took up a list of active ingredients and a few generalized inert ingredients that we could make a dosage form with, mm -hmm. could we build our own pills? Well, and Mike was walking through the logic of this for me. What I would do in the laboratory is take some of the powdered ingredient to my balance and weigh it out. Like, oops, that's not going to work in microgravity. I can't, that just can't be done. Mm-hmm. All right, an alternative would be to take some of the powder and mix it with liquid and measure with a pipetter. All right, this is closer to being reasonable, but uh, as soon as you mix a medication into a liquid form, you've now actually shortened its stability mm -hmm. because you've mixed in water, which is an awful lot of humidity. So you could do that for a dose you're going to take immediately, but not for one you want to keep on the shelf available for, mm -hmm. you know, weeks or months. So we're partway there. So we kind of got stuck. We just, we got stuck. It was a fun idea to talk through, but, and this was a few years ago. But then um, the first 3D printed pill got approved by the FDA in the States. And that made me realize, okay, maybe we are getting closer now. Maybe, mm -hmm. maybe there would be a way to use the mechanical devices in a 3D printer to do that measuring for you and construct dosage forms almost as needed. So that's, that's another avenue where there is active research at this time. Yeah. And that came out of what seemed like a silly question coming from... <laughs> a really smart astronaut. Thank you very much for taking your time. This was a very pleasant and super informative talk. Oh, Michael, I had, I had fun speaking with you. Thank you so much for inviting me. This was The Voice of Medicine. Make sure you tune in next time and take care. <laughs>